You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Richard has been the primary teacher at the CAC since its foundation. But in recent years, he has been stepping away from the center of the circle to join the circumference. A willing step to relinquish many of his active duties and stand shoulder to shoulder with CAC's core faculty. Out of this expanding circle, generativity ripples outward that connects even deeper to the traditions of engaged contemplation to inspire loving action. Today, we reflect on Richard's role and evolution as a spiritual teacher. With his faithful dog Opie hovering and church bells ringing, Richard opens the conversation with a smile so wide you might be able to hear it, connecting us all together as we glean from that spirit of generosity. From the Center for Action and Contemplation, I'm Mike Petro. I'm Paul Swanson. And this is Everything Belongs. Richard, thank you for welcoming us back into your hermitage. Uh, it's always such a pleasure to be here and, and get to connect to converse on so much of life and your teachings and the history of the CAC. The, the theme that we want to bring to the center of our conversation today is spiritual teachers and faculty in general. Oh, okay. So you obviously have a lot of experience of being a teacher who's gone all over the world and taught so many different things, not only through writing, but in your presence and speaking. What do you think makes a good teacher? Wow. You know, I can't say this is the right answer, but it's what dropped in my head. If you don't talk too much and belabor the point with trivia, but you don't talk too little, not to make it not clear. Uh, I found, and I've worked at this, I don't know if I've succeeded, but if you can summarize your point in one great sentence that's memorable, God does not love you because you're good. You're good because God loves you. Something like that. Uh, it really helps to sum up the whole thing in one memorable line. So I've often tried to do that. Uh, what else? Well, you have to be over your early desire, which any public speaker starts as a young man, young woman, wanting to be a success, <laughs> wanting people to like you, you know, probably like Mike Petro was when he was <laughs> a young pastor. Oh, I just wanted to be liked so much. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sorry, I just couldn't resist it. Yeah, yeah that's fair. Uh, but who doesn't when you're young? You just, you need that mirroring from the crowd. Right. Am I coming across, you know? Am I a teacher at all? So uh, probably that's good for audiences to know that if it's really worthwhile or helpful, let your face say it because there's a symbiosis between a speaker and a crowd. And I know when I gave many of my better talks over the years, it sounds so narcissistic. It probably is. It's because I could see on their faces they were loving it. Yeah. And when they're loving it, 
oh, okay, <laughs> more, and it just comes. But when a crowd is fighting you or critiquing you, you feel it. And you then get defensive and you overstate and yeah. Well, that makes sense. I think about like artists, like musicians or comedians. Yeah, like the there, there's way. a connection that happens. It's the same thing when you're in that flow of very good of consciousness and connection and and the teachings that you're trying to deliver and whether or not they're being received or not. How, how did you see yourself grow into the teacher you are today? Because I imagine when you started you weren't necessarily uh, have that same level of grounded comfort in allowing yourself to be open to what's happening in the moment as a teacher. The one thing that comes back as a young friar, I can remember wanting to start with a dramatic opening, one line that already let them know, I'm not gonna go down the usual road. And then you would have their attention. Call that the hook. A hook, okay. Yeah, good hook. I, I love to have a hook. Uh, and I remember it worked for me. People would say, from the first sentence, you know, you're serious about wanting to communicate to us. Uh, I said, I guess I am. Yeah. And then if you could end, end it with something that appeal to the heart mm. so people didn't stay up in their head. There's nothing new happens if they stay in their head. That's all that comes to mind. That's great. Is there, is there one line that you think you'll be most remembered for from your teaching? Like you, if, there's so many zingers, uh, as, as Mike likes to call them, of, of your, the roarisms of the, <laughs> you know, if you, the, the best critique of the bad is the practice of the better. Or if you don't, no, I'm going to get it wrong. If you don't transform your pain, you'll transmute it. Yeah, that's one that's often quoted. Oh, great love and great suffering. There's all these sort of like, yeah. yep. just you, you, have a, you have a knack, even your systems, you have a knack for like quick, snappy systems. Uh, or yeah. disorder, reorder. Even when you're taking other people's stuff and making it better, you really do. You make it super memorable. Right. You you're give the mind a hook to hang it on. Thank you. Uh, it's in our contracts. We have to flatter you forty percent. Flatter the founder. <laughs> Make him think he's much so better than he really is. Another, it's another rorism. Flatter the flounder. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> flatter the founder, not the flounder. <laughs> uh, you know the one, the biggie. Uh, God let me do everything wrong so he could do everything right mm. in me. If I were gonna want a sentence on my gravestone, I saw where I'll be buried this week at the Franciscan gathering. There's no room for a little line where you just our name and our death date. But it would be something about uh, that, that, uh, God didn't love me because I was good. Because mm. I know I wasn't that good. Even my best things were done for mixed motives. Mm. And it was God doing it in you, in spite of you. Uh, God doesn't love you because you're good. You're good because God loves you. Mm. The love of the divine love 
which is infinite, comes first. And then everything slides out of that. Mm. It's interesting. I'm curious, over the years, I imagine your audience, the students who've shown up to learn from you, have probably changed, right? It probably looks a little yes. bit different than it did years ago. Has that changed the way you teach? The folks who show up yeah. and what you've learned from your students? I think because, you know, I was introduced in the 70s as the tape priest. Mm -hmm. Because I had the wonderful privilege of knowing that a, a good percentage of any audience was already familiar with the way I talk and my big themes. Because your audio cassettes were so popular and spread around. So, so yeah, the early okay. ones, the cassettes. That I had the advantage of being able to assume, and I guess I still do that. Okay, they know where I'm coming from. They know the big field. Now let's make it apropos to this little field here today in what I'm supposed to talk about. So, you know, Jesus never had that advantage yeah. of cassette tapes that preceded him. So I'm sure, as we see even in the Gospels, I'm sure he was misquoted misunderstood because uh, the ego tends to hear either what it wants to hear or what it's terrified it isn't hearing so it makes the speaker say that even mm. though he didn't say that mm. or she didn't mm. say that that's so interesting to think about jesus not having that advantage yeah and also i think about in the times of today of if you change your mind or you evolve in thought, someone will say, well, you said this five you years ago. Back in, and like yeah. the ways in which there's disadvantages to both, but uh, the risk that teachers take in, in holding that post of teacher. That shows great compassion, but just great common sense that everybody evolves. And uh, you can't hold them to what they said Ten years ago, you know. Do you do you have any of your teachings, Richard, that you feel like sometimes get misunderstood? Is there any like one thing in your in your many, many, many different areas of focus that you're like, you know, gosh, this whole understanding of eternal damnation? Hmm. What just astounds me is that people are attached to that. Yeah. Why would you want to defend when people say, I believe in hell? Do you really believe mm. in hell? Yeah. Uh, because it maintains the equations of good behavior deserves reward, bad behavior deserves punishment. I'm trying to address this in my book I'm writing now on the prophets. Um, yeah, it astounds me how attracted we are to bad news and how people will defend it. Do you realize what you're defending? You want to say, but they, they can't hear what you're saying. This whole understanding we have now, I checked it out with some of the friars this week, of uh, trauma residing in the body. Mm -hmm. And the body can't hear logic. And yeah. so to talk to people logically when they're traumatized human beings, they can't hear you. 
They will defend what they already believe, even though it's disastrous about what it says about God. Usually what it says about God, is that impatient? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, we see this with our students and in spiritual direction, for sure. The, the belief in hell lives in the brainstem more than it lives in the cerebral They're, cortex. Well put, well put. Some yeah. people will stop believing in it for years and still have a latent fear. That's right. right? That's right. It lives in the body. Do you realize you still imply a wrathful God? Mm. How could God, God be wrathful? Just look through the telescope, the web telescope, and say God is wrathful. Oh yeah, those planets are burning up. Well, <laughs> it's again seeking the metaphor you want to maintain a disastrous universe. So you have folks who have these harsh beliefs that are, even if they don't cognitively believe them anymore, they're still carrying the memory still, of it. Still, yeah. And then, and then a huge portion of your audience is folks going through deconstruction where they're asking really, really yeah. hard questions about their religious beliefs. And you have never shied away from confronting the injustice in the world and recognizing that there's hard things we live in. And yet you teach that everything belongs, that if Jesus and the Trinity are the face of God, we live in a benevolent universe. Has it been hard to carry that message all these years, realistically, in the face of so many people who are traumatized, so many people who want to believe in a wrathful God or are afraid not to, so many people who are asking hard questions. That, that's, a, that's an impressive space for you to stand in for so yeah. long. It is hard when you see how uncurious mm. the majority of Christians are. They, don't bother me with any new way of, like even, you could be preaching the doctrine of the Trinity, which is the core of ultra-Christian orthodoxy, and it's ho-hum. Okay, okay, get on to something real. They don't really want to be disabused of their non notion of a monarchical, authoritarian, top-down God. They don't want that. And I'd say, are you Trinitarian? Well, of course I believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what that implies, what that says about the God is not an autocrat. God is a communion of giving and receiving. But most people don't think theologically like I do. So I know God can't hate them. But it sure makes our work hard. <laughs> the, the, your greatest resistance comes from people who call themselves deep believers. And they're deep believers in a very superficial notion of Christianity. The atonement theory being the other big example. You really believe that? That God needs to be paid off? God? <laughs> And he can't love us. I just heard it on, what TV show was it? Forgive me, it was some evangelical making this big case for God's justice demands vengeance. Mm. Oh, it does? <laughs> so God is unfree. Because yeah. that's what they're saying. God, God has to abide by our rules of reward punishment. Tit for tat, God. 
The what? A tit for tat God. Tit for tat God, yeah. And you take them out of that. They're unsteady. They're un. It's not a reasonable universe. I want bad people to be punished, and I want myself, of course, <laughs> to be rewarded because I'm the good person. They don't realize a win lose universe is always disastrous because we can't win <laughs> if, if that's our goal. All it does is send us down a path of, of delusion about who we are and who other people are and who other people aren't. It doesn't create communion. Win-win. It's got to be a win-win universe. I'm talking too much. It's, but, yeah. it's interesting, though. One of the things you're leading me to reflect on is how much, of, how much good theology has to be medicinal. Right, because you're not you're not just teaching good ideas. Like you're your correcting. You're correcting some really toxic ideas that have permeated our culture, and really heavily influenced a lot of our a lot of our listeners, not just intellectually, but but at the level of permeating our nervous systems and our bodies. You know, we carry these beliefs yeah, like scars. It's largely some of us. deconstructing at first of all the toxic ideas they have about themselves. That they're not the beloved son or beloved daughter. Yes, you are, objectively. <laughs> and they don't like, you should see the look on some of their face. Well, I don't think I earned that. No, you didn't earn that. Oh, well, then I don't know if I want it, if I didn't deserve it or earn it. The resistance to the good news is major, major. Wow. Yeah. I think too about the ways in which if like there there's the way that trauma impacts that, right? Go ahead. And then yes. there's also the ways in which a metaphor has maybe run its course where it's no longer applicable. Oh, that's a in, very good phrase. In kind of the in the, the times that may be. And you know, your example of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is still a metaphor for the Trinity. Yes. Right? And of course. I was just And you say you're saying it's not true. Right. Oh God! So it's true beneath yeah. that. Uh -huh. And this is—I was just reflecting upon uh, Bruno Barnhart's the way he talked about it as uh, mm. silence, word, and uh, and music, and like to to, to turn that oh, on. I it, forgot that to turn it in that direction adds more texture and color to it. It doesn't negate Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but to be able to play with that. And that's what I feel like a good spiritual teacher can do is can offer do. Yeah. new, open new windows to let some fresh air in that mm. make allowances for people to, to, to hear from a different way. And I think that power of the teacher can help yes. make those deep impressions on somebody's soul. And Beautiful. Thank I, you. I would, I would love, you know, um, to ask you about who are those teachers who have made those big impressions on your soul? Who are the folks um, who have helped you see beyond maybe metaphors that had ended mm. or to help heal some of that, the, the own trauma that you have carried in your life? Who are those teachers who have expanded your own theological and spiritual worldview? Mm. You know, the first one comes to mind, I'm sure you've never heard of him. He was a Christian, a French Christian brother. And I went to summer school at Notre Dame, and I would just 
absorb Brother Didier. That was his French last name. I just come out ecstatic. Everything he said made so much sense. And I remember the friars, yeah, I know, Brother Didier said, Brother Didier said. <laughs> but, and he's an unknown name, you know, but he yeah. just got it. Uh, and unfortunately, he was a brother, not a priest, so he never got the pulpit. Uh, who were some other ones? Well, Father Siren, who I just checked online, is still alive. He's around 90 now, 10 years ahead of me. He taught me systematic theology. And I remember just floating out of the classroom. He was totally scotistic on uh, the universal Christ notion. So he first taught me that. And I remember it was a totally new idea, even to us. Uh, who else? I had a Father Paul who studied at Louvain and he taught us a course that he had entirely created. And then I didn't keep those notes. I could kick myself. It was called Phil Psych, Philosophical Psychology. And he just took every word that you might use a lot, fear, love, grace, and we'd spend days unpackaging that word, Phil Psych. And he isn't known widely. He was brilliant. And they wasted him teaching a small class of 25 seminarians. This guy should be at Notre Dame, you know? But. It's so fascinating to me, Richard, that you can study with these brilliant teachers, that you can read these great mystics, that you can read theology, you know, you and I, we nerd out about theology sometimes, but, but things that for most people would not be interesting, appealing, or understandable. Would not even be interesting. But you hear something in it that reverberates in you, and then yeah. you're able to translate that and communicate it in a way that's accessible and matters to that's so many people. That's my only gift, that God inspired me enough to, to know why and how the gospel was transformative of the soul, transformative of the mind. And to know that is, that isn't. Like anything instrumental or, uh, is that the word? Yeah, it's just, which, forgive me, well, you're not Catholics that good, but so much <laughs> of Catholic theology is instrumental. Yeah. And it's what makes it hard to be Catholic. Just go to your first communion and you have received Christ. Well, yes, but no. <laughs> uh, just have the water poured over your head and you are a Christian. Well, yes, but no. Why did it becomes so hard to preach the gospel. I don't know what the instrumentalism is in your churches, but it's just make a personal decision for Jesus, huh? 
which makes you the savior of yourself. <laughs> I made my personal decision. Oh, that's good. <laughs> if you, if, if whatever way you're preaching the gospel is not leading to self-abandonment and surrender, to let someone else do it, to God alone be the glory. I was in um, Murder in the Cathedral. I was the chorus in college. And um, Thomas Becket stands in the pulpit, and of course he has to speak Latin. He's 11th century. He says, non nobis, Domine, non nobis, said datu gloriam. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And the big thesis of murder in the cathedral, you know, is did, he, did Thomas Becket set himself up to be a martyr? Did he sort of want it? And there's a lot in his life that gives you the impression, you know, that he went there knowing, okay, they'll kill me at the altar today. Uh, and you never know how much he set it up and how much it was truly an abandonment you never know from his life. And if you've been to Canterbury Cathedral, this very spot, there's this big sword coming down where Thomas Becket was killed. Because for a number of centuries, in England, of course, the shrine of Thomas Becket is the holy place to go to because you have a, a bishop resisting a king and killed by the king. All the stories, what Oscar Romero did for us in the 20th century, Thomas Becket did. And uh, I don't think the question has to be answered. It's probably, he did it for mixed motives. And guess what, Richard Rohr does everything for mixed motives too. We all do, join the club. <laughs> yeah, if you ever read the, uh, who wrote, who wrote Murder of the Cathedral? T.S. Eliot, yeah. It's just a masterpiece. I think one of the things I really appreciate and that I hear emerging in this conversation is that as a teacher, whether it's theology or psychology or, or whatever is kind of you're working on, it always seems to point people towards transformation, which... That would be my big bias. Yeah. If it isn't transforming the mind, the heart, and the soul, it can't be the gospel. It can't be. If it's just do this technique. <laughs> and I'm afraid Catholics are so subject to that. Yeah. One of the things, we'll talk about this in a later episode, but one of the things we've learned from you is three guiding questions in everything that we work on in the, in the curriculum what and offerings. Are they? What do we want people to know? How do we want people to grow or transform? And then how do we want people to show up in the world? And that's just basically from, from watching how you have taught. Wow. You give good information, but always with a challenge for transformation and then always with a challenge for us to take that transformation and put well, it in thank service. Thank you for seeing that. I never saw that. Never <laughs> You've saw been, that. been doing it for <laughs> yeah, five decades. It's yeah. all intuitive. Professional it's not ministry. planned.
I asked, I asked Richard this, one of the first conversations we ever had, I had this whole thing where I was talking about origin and, and teaching and how you instruct different people at different levels. And I laid this all out and I was like, you do this flawlessly. Have you studied this? Do you do it on purpose? And Richard said, I just do it all intuitively. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You can it's hear it in, all, in your oh, teachings. The, so great. The once you try it, like don't trust me, go try it for yourself. Like that, oh, yeah. the way you always leave that door open. Well, thank you. You guys are just, I think it's ready for me to die. It's time for me to die that you're telling me back what I've been doing without thinking about it. But it's right, <laughs> the way you just said it, yeah. Thank lots, you. Lots of good roarisms to drop. Now, as my voice gets more and more crackly and old, thank you. Thank you, Richard. Everything Belongs will continue in a moment. Join us for a series of free virtual sit meditations each Friday from February 16th through March 29th. Each meditation will be broadcast on YouTube at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Register to receive customized emails each week to guide your practice this season. Learn more at cac.org slash lent dash sit. That's cac.org slash l-e-n-t dash s-i-t. Step into a world of depth and purpose with Falling Upward, Life as a Spiritual Journey. Discover wisdom for the two halves of life in CAC's newest online course featuring Richard Rohr. Join us for this 15-week study of Father Richard Rohr's beloved book of the same name. Coursework starts March 27th. Register today at cac.org slash falling up. That's cac.org slash f-a-l-l-i-n-g-u-p. Richard is quick to note his intuitive sense, the gaps he sees in the spiritual landscape and how he offers guidance, when to fill them in or ignore them, or even to take a more gracious route. This gift of Richard's is one of his superpowers. As Brian McLaren steps into the post of Dean of Faculty, you get a sense of the extraordinary gifts he brings to this position. Brian has a keen sense of the opportunities that lay ahead for the CAC and transformational learning with both our faculty and staff and students alike. Alongside Brian, Gigi Ross joins the conversation. She works with our living school and wisely considers, crafts, and supports student experiences at the CAC. Brian, thank you so much for making the space today to connect with us. Uh, we're so thrilled uh, any, anytime I get to hang out with you and this crew of friends and, and talk shop, uh, I know I'm in for a treat. So we appreciate you making time today. Well, listen, I feel the same way. Can't imagine three more interesting conversation partners than you three. Oh, that's very kind. Today, we want to talk about CAC faculty and spiritual teachers in general. We've spent some time with Richard talking about what, what makes a good teacher and the ways in which he's been able to kind of recognize his own gifts and see the gifts of, of others and learn from them. Knowing that you and Richard go back uh, quite a ways now, what would you say are some of the, 
the impacts that Richard has had on your life as mm. a teacher? You know, one of my mentors, Paul, uh, said something that has stayed with me for many, many years. He said, learning is not the consequence of teaching. Learning is the consequence of thinking. And uh, the best teachers are uh, ones who make you think. And what I felt with Richard, and this I'm speaking very personally here, but uh, I was in the Protestant world uh, and my background was evangelical and I was trying to think outside the box that I was given. <laughs> I jokingly say that whenever I got too far uh, out of the box, I felt like I was thinking in, mol in molasses, <laughs> meaning <laughs> the, the social belonging to a group made me feel it wasn't safe to think outside of certain bounds. And it just made it harder to think. And I remember when uh, the first of Richard's books I read was Things Hidden. But uh, uh, when I, I read that book and then other books, and then I got to meet Richard and speak with him, and you know we were on the road crossing paths quite often. Whenever I was around him, I felt like here is someone who gives me permission to think. Uh, and he's not putting a, a lid over my head saying, don't go above this, or he's not putting a fence around me saying, don't go beyond that. He was someone whose curiosity and heart had led him to lifelong growth. You know, he, uh, I think that's something people don't realize. If we could go back in time and hear Richard teaching in the 1970s or 80s, it would sound very different because he's kept on a learning journey of his own. And so that's, to me, teachers make you think and they invite you to think and they give you permission to think and they prod you to think. And what when they share their thoughts, it's those thoughts enrich your thoughts. And sometimes the best thing is they stimulate new thoughts. And so that's, that's how I feel with Richard. Plus the fact that, you know, some people have great ideas, which is wonderful, but some people have great ideas and a personal presence that conveys those ideas with love and warmth and humanity. And that's, that's to me the beautiful combination that Richard has brought. And I think all of us as teachers could aspire to that. That's high praise. That's lovely to hear that connection point. Is there anything, and I, you are not a teacher alone on the CAC faculty. There is a cadre of teachers. When you look at your colleagues, uh, Dr. Barbara Holmes and Dr. Jim Finley, how do you respond in that same manner of how have their teachings mm. and their, their embodied teachings by their lives impacted you? Okay, so I'm going to let out a secret here that I don't think I've ever even told Jim. But <laughs> uh, I heard Jim on, or I, I saw Jim on YouTube videos many years ago. And my first thought was, man, he speaks slowly. <laughs> And, and I kept thinking, uh, this is before I knew how to turn on to 1.25 or 1.5 speed on YouTube. <laughs> and I just thought, uh, come on, I wish we could kick this into a higher gear. Uh, the first time I heard Jim speak in public, I, after his lecture, he gave a one-hour lecture. And after the lecture, I called my wife and I said, if you took the top 10 talks I've ever heard, this was just, you know, probably in the top three. Wow. And, uh, and what I realized was 
when I was watching Jim on YouTube, I wasn't getting everything that comes through from being uh, in his presence. Uh, th th this is not an ideal analogy, but there's a, a philosopher, he died some years ago, uh, but he was very important in postmodern philosophy named Jacques Derrida. And I remember I tried to read a lot of Jacques Derrida's books and I, and they were a struggle. I got to hear him in person and I realized he was funny. He like everything was said tongue in cheek and with a joke in his voice. And when I went back and read his books after that, it, it made me feel like, oh, now I can read him because I wasn't, I didn't need to take every word and sentence seriously. I needed to get the playfulness that was happening in a paragraph, something like that. Well, with Jim, it, I realized that part of his brilliance as a teacher is that he works like a poet and he's, it's less important. Obviously what he says is very, very significant, but it's where he takes you in what he says and uh, almost the state of mind that he induces. And so I learned how to listen to him in person. And of course, I'm a huge fan of his, of all of his teaching, but I just think turning to the mystics is an incredible gift to the, uh, to the human race right now. So uh, Jim has been absolutely a delight uh, to work with. And I had heard of uh, Dr. Barbara Holmes for uh, quite a while, but uh, when I read her book, uh, the first book of hers I read was Race and the Cosmos. And I just remember reading that and thinking, I can't wait to get to meet her. And uh, the chance to work with her at CAC has been a delight. Um, Dr. B it was a, a real academic. She was also a you know, seminary president. She, she, has, she knows how to work in the academic world um, but one of the beautiful things that I think she's had greater freedom here in the CAC is to talk, talk a lot more about her life and her spirituality and her story and her history, her ancestry, and uh, integrate her brilliant academic mind with her own personal experience and spirituality. It's just a, it's just a great gift. Uh, for those of us who are kind of theology nerds and we love to read uh, theology, um, I th thankfully, I think it's becoming more common with contemporary writers. But when you read texts of the last couple of hundred years, it's almost like the theologian thought he would reduce, and it was usually he in those yeah. days, thought he would reduce his credibility if he brought in his personal life. He had to be objective and quoting other famous dead white people usually, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, so it has been such a delight to, to work with Dr. B. Um, I'll just say of her many interests, her interest in science and integrating science, theology, spirituality, uh, to me, this is so important going forward. And uh, that's one of the things I especially admire about listening to her. I'm a huge fan of her uh, Cosmic We podcast. Too. I love it. I love it. Brian, uh, just to sort of round out the trilogy that we're doing here, um, <laughs> what about students? Um, have they been your teachers in any way? I'm thinking you began teaching at the intensives for the living school in 2019 and just wondering if what you've learned, if anything, from living school students. Oh, my goodness. So one of the great things about the living school is that, you know, we create lots of opportunity for questions and discussion and interaction, student to student, student to teacher. And I think there are uh, 
Oh, there are many kinds of questions that students ask, but there are two kinds of questions, especially where students always become my teacher. Um, that's when they ask me to go deeper on something uh, that causes me to think. What I said about learning is not the consequence of teaching, but of thinking. When a student asks me a question that I have to give a second thought to, I feel they're my teacher they're, they're, because they're causing me to think. And then the other uh, reality is sometimes I, I might say something and a it, it goes up against something a student is taught, has already been taught, or something they've always thought or always believed. And so they feel resistance to what's being said. And often you can feel in their question, it's coming out of resistance. And what this always feels like a gift to me because they're teaching me about their world and their perspective and where they're coming from. And, and, and then I have to do some thinking to try to see the world from their perspective, to try to see what may seem obvious to me seems, you know, out of line to them in some way. And, and there are many other ways too. I, I just think of, especially times when we get to be in the same room and talk one-on-one -on -one or sitting around a meal table and people start sharing their story. And, uh, and of course, when you encounter people in the presence of their self-revelation and their story, uh, it, it brings about a kind of transformation, doesn't it? That, that always, always goes, goes both ways. Uh, that's why I, years ago I was asked to um, record, a, a, to, to be at a live event and record a series of talks. And they didn't want me to ask any questions as I taught because they wanted to have a recording that, you know, that only had one voice. And uh, it drove me nuts as an educator because I do think that learning is enhanced when there's conversation, especially for adults, you know. Uh, there's an adage in adult education, uh, if you ever take an adult education class and they, they say something like this, that adults learn the most when they're laughing or talking. <laughs> That's great. And I, I think, uh, yeah, so that, that conversational dimension is so important. That's so wild. I, yeah, you just blow my mind. I'm thinking about all our teachers and what I have appreciated about all of you. And I love that you mentioned Things Hidden being the first book you read from Richard. That was the first of his books that I read. And I think when I encountered Richard, I fell in love with the questions he was asking, right? Yeah. And then and then experienced his spiritual curiosity as so enriching. And then when I met him in person, experienced him to be just such a curious person. And encountering Jim, Jim was walking on this healing path and mystical path and always seemed to be turning around saying, you can, you can walk this path with me and talking about his teachers, talking about his therapist, talking about Thomas Merton and how they fit into his life. And then Dr. B blew the doors off the, the, the world that I lived in. Dr. B reintroduced me to a crowded cosmos where ancestors uh, were teachers and the world itself was animated. And it just, just, is a whole completely different learning experience. And then Brian, you're the consummate listener. Mm -hmm. You are, it's amazing to me 
to work with you and watch you engage a student and have a conversation and be educating while learning from students and know that the next time I step into a situation with you, you are actually going to be doing things slightly different because you've incorporated that learning. And so what's wild is to think about how all our teachers are also students with us. And I'd be, I'd be curious of your thoughts on that, Gigi, since student experience is your expertise mm-hmm. and, and this kind of quandary, are, are, is a good teacher always a student? Mm-hmm. There's uh, one of the, I forget which gospel, but where Jesus, um, someone calls Jesus rabbi, which means teacher, and Jesus says, um, don't call me teacher, don't call anyone teacher, we're all learners. And so that, that kind of... That, that's the kind of, I know like from our, our students, they love hearing the faculty. They love it best when there's some kind of give and take that you were talking about, Brian. And they also love it when they're allowed to share what they learned as well. Mm-hmm. So I think all three of those kind of come into play. You know, maybe I could just add there, Gigi, that's such a great point for folks who have been to graduate school. Most, if you think about it this way, undergraduate education is very often lectures lectures, assignments, tests, problem solving, that sort of thing. Very often in graduate school, it's seminars. And in a seminar, students have to teach each other. Students have to go do original research and present it to each other. And when I was in all my years as a pastor, the thing I loved is that as I had to prepare a new sermon every week, I had to go out and do, or many times a week often, I had to go do original research and then present it, which in a sense, that's ideal. You're not just reading off the same notes and using the same script. You're sharing your fresh discoveries from your learning experience. And and um, and very often in the process of teaching things, you actually understand them way better than you did before, or else you find out that you didn't, you don't understand them as well as well as you thought, uh, which is part of the learning process too. That's fantastic. I had a mentor that used to say, "We teach best what we need to learn most." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I so appreciate the way this conversation is going and. You know, one of the things we've talked about the CAC of late is in this season of transition, you know, where Richard has been at the center and is now kind of moving towards the circumference of this community of teachers. And Gigi, I love the way that you make sure to bring teachers are also that students are also teachers. That like there's it's a teaching community where there's this co-learning going on. Um, Brian, I'm curious for you, as you know, you step in this role, but we're kind of the, the leader amongst the faculty as the dean. What direction do you see this evolving, this community of teachers? What, where do you see it heading? And how do you even define faculty in a co-learning environment? Mm, mm. Well, it's funny you say that, uh, Paul, because just this morning I was uh, had to give a, a dean's report to the board of directors of the CAC. Uh-huh. And um, I, I actually... I. We didn't plan this, but I have my notes here <laughs> from the little uh, report that I gave. And maybe would it be okay if I actually tried to read a little bit of this? Because I, it kind of answers that question, even though we didn't plan I'd it I'd be that super way. curious to hear that. Um, I, I wrote, um, as I've gotten more involved with the CAC over the past six years or so, uh, I've been impressed with the immense potential of this organization 
Um, I'd like to share what may be obvious to you already, but if not, I hope I can make it clear. And the first thing I said is the CAC is an educational organization, pioneering an innovative kind of education that combines online and in-person education, individual on-demand coursework and cohort-based learning, and student-centered and mission-centered learning. And let me just pause on that because, um, you know, there are a lot of schools that are do incredible work, and I thank God for them, you know. They're 100% student-centered. And frankly, I think student-centered learning is a big step over teacher-centered learning because teacher-centered learning is we're going to learn what the teacher wants to talk about. Student-centered learning is what do these people need and let's find a way to bring what's needed to bear. I'm a big fan of student-centered learning, but also we have mission-centered learning because the goal of the CAC is to not just produce students, it's it's to uh, equip students to participate in a movement, a movement that brings engaged contemplation to the problems of the world. And we're facing, I mean, you know, we're, we're alive in an incredible time right now, a scary time in many ways, when we're facing the biggest ecological crisis in human history. I mean, when we hear reports of melting glaciers and rising sea levels and extinct species and raging wildfires and, uh, uh, you know, a million other consequences of ecological overshoot by human civilization, we realize, man, we have to learn a whole new way of living with the earth. And when we realize that we could blow each other off the face of the earth by two idiots pressing buttons, right, we, we realize we got to learn how to get along with each other better. And when we're experiencing a pandemic of suicide and depression and aloneness, we realize we have to learn how to live with ourselves. I mean, these are times where we need a movement. And so that's the first thing I said to them. Second thing I said, we're not just an educational organization, we're also this movement building organization. And then the third thing I said is that in order to do this, we're trying to create a unique curriculum, and this is a curriculum that has never really existed before because we are trying for, you know, we have centuries of Catholics teaching Catholics, Catholic theology and spirituality, and Protestants teaching Protestants in their different little silos, Protestant theology, and Orthodox doing that, and then Buddhists are doing their version, and Jews are doing their version, and, and Muslims are doing their version, and all the different forms of each of those religions and secular humanists are doing their version. And here we are, we're trying to create a curriculum deeply rooted in the Christian contemplative tradition, drawing from Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, drawing from historically white legacies, and trying to end that hegemony of Eurocentric theology and welcome in the wisdom of black and liberation theologies, indigenous theologies, queer theologies, mestizo theologies, eco-feminist and womanist theologies, all of these different strands. We're, we're trying to build a curriculum that integrates these in an ecumenical setting in the breadth of Christianity. And then to do that, as we must in today's world, in dialogue with our Buddhist friends and, and, and sisters and brothers and our are Sufi Muslim sisters and brothers and other kinds of Muslim and Jewish and Hindu and, and Sikh and all the rest. 
and and also not excluding our friends and neighbors who don't want to be part of any organized religion and may describe themselves as as humanists rather than Christians or uh, uh, non-theists rather than theists, um, but who all share this desire to explore the depth of of human life um, and desire to contribute to the common good. I mean, that's a very different kind of curriculum, and it feels like we're not just creating a new curriculum, we're creating a new field, as you say, Mike Petro. Uh, we're, we're really we're involved in something that feels very, very exciting. And not to be overly grandiose, thank God there are many people trying this in different places, but it does feel like we have a chance to make a contribution. And then finally, um, then to do that kind of work, it it requires a unique kind of faculty. And, and really, uh, you know, Richard, in a sense, he was the central teacher. And then he invited Jim and Cynthia to join him. And then Dr. B and I were invited. And what is happening going forward is that we're going to be a community of teachers and each of us will bring unique strengths. We really hope we'll bring different perspectives, different, and, and sometimes in very deep ways, you know, deeply different views of the world because we come from very different places and life stories and so on. But there's one way that that happens, you know, in, an, in a lot of religious education, everybody has to agree on everything or pretend to, um, or, or any, any differences they have are, you know, very finely split hairs, right? But, uh, and then there are other educational settings where people go head to head and, are, and are, there's a lot of ego involved with, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm the top dog in this faculty, you're the, you know, you're the second tier, you're the third string, you're out on the bench. Uh, but to create a, an environment where we have genuine affection and respect and love and community that is enhanced by difference uh, and enriched uh, by our common heart and commitment to, as you were saying before, a lifelong learning for ourselves and to assist in the lifelong learning of uh, students. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Part of what I hear in that is the invitation for all of life to be teacher uh, from whatever context it may be. And yet in our, in the way that the CAC is orientating, we will have faculty who are going to help organize around the, the wisdom of traditions and the ways that that arises not only within religions and philosophical streams and also in student lives that we don't that we, we invite all of this into the conversation so that we become this community of learners and uh, respect the, the expertise and wisdoms that comes from multiple corners and not just one specific lineage that has been put in the spotlight potentially for too long at the expense of so much of the human and cosmological wisdom that's been out there. Well, and yeah, it's exciting to hear you say that, Paul and, and Brian. You, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me in looking at how our faculty will expand and also how we can sink deeper and wider roots into those lineages and traditions. You know, when we, when we more authentically represent the many faces of the Christian contemplative traditions and we get beyond the five European mystics that most people know, mm. right? The, these are traditions that have always lived at the margins and the most exciting edges of society. 
Um, and that that's an extraordinary, an extraordinary group of teachers to learn from. And, and, I, and I love this idea where sort of the vitality is in the variance, right? Yeah. It's not about everyone agreeing. We're, we're exploring instead of explaining. We're dialoguing instead of defining. It's mm. pretty cool. You know, um, what I like about the, especially the idea that the differences enhance is there's also a way, I think, in which faculty model for students about what it means. I mean, the, the, the title of this podcast is Everything Belongs, you know, and so what mm. it means to show that there's a place for everybody in, in this learning community and that there isn't one right way, one wrong way. There's a way. There is a way in which everything belongs and enhances each other. Um, and and just just wonder if you could say more about how you see the faculty working together to model in that way. Good question. Yes. Well, uh, I think, um, Gigi, what you said about different traditions. We have these these rich lineages, right? We have the Franciscan tradition that was so formative for Richard. We have uh, Thomas Merton and his Trappist community that was so formative for Jim and his development. Dr. B coming from the black church tradition and her own unique experience with ancestry in the Gullah community of the low countries on the East coast. And, uh, and, uh, and then all of our individual life stories for the three of us joined together with Richard and his unique story as a uh, American of German descent in the Midwest uh, and, uh, and going into the seminary and the priesthood. And uh, so the four of us bring that, those varieties of, of experience, but um, I, I'm the youngest on the faculty. Uh, I, I always tell people, I know I don't look a day over 77, but I'm 67. <laughs> and uh, uh, and it, you know, there's a real sense that in the contemplative community, there's this sense that there's a seasoning that takes years. You, you don't expect to find a I think you can find a 16-year-old mystic. I think I was a mystic at 16. But there, there's something that happens when you haven't just visited a certain country, but you've lived there for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's some advantage of age. But I'll tell you a place where I feel will be an important challenge for us going forward. I think people who are born today are born into a different world than people who were born when I was in, in the 60s and when the other three faculty were born in previous decades. And, and so one of our big challenges, and this is where students educate older teachers, younger students constantly educate older teachers, is by reminding them that the world has changed a lot. And so in a certain sense, as many of us grow older, we have to, well, it evokes the old Crosby Stills uh, Nash and Young song that um, children have to teach their parents well uh, because the the parents' world is going by. And uh, I think this is especially true now. And then you add the issues of social location, uh, racial, geographical, uh, economic class, uh, professional, 
uh, just so many different social locations. And we come from a classist as well as racist history that segregates people, puts them in bubbles of sameness. And so we, we hope that in the years to come, we'll be able to create zones where, where uh, well, let's, let me say it this way. We'll create zones where even if we don't have the full range of diversity at any given moment that we wish we had in the room, we're helping people develop the spirit and the eyes, to use the title of my podcast, we're helping people learn to see uh, with empathy and imagination so that they don't just see another human being and say, what's wrong with him? He's not the same as me. She doesn't think like me. To say, I wonder what led them to see that way. And that brings us back, Paul, to what you said, that our life becomes our teacher and every person we meet becomes a teacher in that sense. Um, so the, I don't know if that little ramble uh, gets close to answering your question, but it, it, uh, I, I think it's, it's a great question because it, it reminds us that good teaching in a certain sense doesn't just teach you content. It teaches you how to learn and then the learning goes with you everywhere. As you're speaking, something struck me, Brian. I'm wondering if you would agree with this. You know, as Richard held the post of the dean of faculty, and now that's a, a post that you've stepped into, um, do you see that post of dean as keeping an eye on the landscape of like who are those who are teaching others how to to learn how to see, to, to use mm. the, the name of your podcast, that that is one of the central tenets of what being dean of faculty is, knowing that's a post you hold for a while and then pass on to somebody yes. else with this idea of how do you keep your finger on the pulse and what students who are coming uh, behind you are, are seeking to learn so that we can remain mission-driven, student-centered in how we embrace transformational learning. So I, I've taken on this responsibility at a time where we're redesigning the living school and we're trying to think more broadly about our whole educational philosophy at the CAC. And we're trying to get a clear sense of our, what is ours to do in this broader emerging movement. And, and as we try to gain more understanding that we, we live in a time when traditional religious institutions are... Many of them are self-destructing, tearing themselves apart, you know, driving with their eyes on the rearview mirror, hmm. and our world is just a, a, a hot mess. So what I feel my big role will be for these next few years, however long I, I stay in this position, will be to seize this moment to capture and preserve the legacy that Richard has set and to honor it by honoring Richard's example of continuing to learn. And so I'll feel a, a major part of my job is to work with the three of you, you know, in, uh, in this conversation to find and build a, a faculty that is a learning and teaching community itself and to build a level of camaraderie, mutual respect, teamwork, uh, and collaboration that will bring benefit to the students and our 
and and all the recipients of the CAC's resources. But of course, it doesn't stop there because what we want to have happen is that that affects the way those people live. So they live the teachings forward in their family and in their neighborhood and in their profession and in their school. And when they go to the voting booth and when they are making purchases and participating in a uh, uh, destructive economy, figuring out how to do less harm and then maybe even do some good, how they take a walk in the woods, how they honor the, the glory of God and creation and, you know, how they scratch the head of the dog that uh, they that they meet in the park or how they honor the incredible symphony of the birds early in the morning. Uh, In a real sense, you know, we want the ripples of what we do to spread out so that uh, very literally, you know, there's a verse in, in, in the book of Romans where Paul says that all creation is groaning until the revelation of the children of God. And in an ecological crisis like we're in, Part of what I hear that saying, that passage saying, is that the whole world is suffering because human beings aren't acting like children of God. We're acting like a bunch of consumptive, spoiled, uh, entitled, greedy brats. <laughs> and so, if we can contribute a little bit into helping more people act like children of God and treat one another in the world and themselves a little better, that that'll be a great thing. I'm thinking about two of my favorite teachers. You know, Carl Jung has this fantastic quote where he says, for Christianity to accomplish its great educative task, it has to begin again from the very beginning. Yes. It's not a matter of new theology. It's a matter of people who don't even know that their eyes can see. So we have to teach people how to see. And the origin talks about the goal of contemplation being sinking the mind into the heart and seeking there for other eyes. And so I'll be meditating for weeks after this conversation on contemplation as a calling to curiosity and then a curiosity about where that calling takes us. This is Mm. just fantastic. Thank you. I was wondering if we could kind of span things out a little bit to a more general um, topic, and that is spiritual teaching in general. I'm sure that you've experienced it. I know all the other teachers have that sometimes people can project their own inner spiritual teacher onto somebody else. Mm. And I'm just wondering, how do you see the role of a spiritual teacher in general? And then how would you counsel people to discern whether someone is a spiritual teacher for them? Mm. So Gigi, that's a a rich multi-part question. So I want you to hold my feet to the fire. If I go off on (laughs) one part of it and I avoid another, I don't want to miss any part of it. First, let me say, I think for those of us who are Christians, one, one, another one of my teachers and mentors used to say, we must teach what Jesus taught in the manner that Jesus taught it. Um, because the, the manner that you teach something, if you respect the teacher, the manner matches the matter, the content. And so Jesus taught in parables. Jesus taught in by asking lots of lots of questions. Jesus taught by doing things and then letting those thing the things that he did demonstrate meaning. You know, people don't often think of parables as art forms, but I'm an old English major. I see parables as works of short fiction. And much of Jesus' teaching is poetry and he loves to quote the poets especially 
uh, second Isaiah, who was a poet. And so I think the first thing that we see as Christian teachers is that we would like in some way to emulate uh, not only the content, but the method and substance and spirit by which Jesus taught. Jesus taught very boldly. He called down blessings and woes on people. He, he wasn't afraid to shoot straight and, say th- and, and use strong and shocking language. Flannery O'Connor said, you know, for people who can't see, you have to draw in very l- strange, exaggerated caricatures. Uh, so Jesus uses some of that kind of language. Second thing is that Jesus says, you know, I, I, there's things you're not ready for. Um, this, the comforter, the spirit will come and teach you. And later in the New Testament, one of the uh, uh, writers says, you don't really need anyone to teach you because you have an anointing that teaches you from within. And so I think there's a peculiar characteristic of good Christian teaching that has a certain gentleness. It wants to make offerings and then step back and let people listen to the spirit themselves. And, 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 Part of that is saying, I, I don't know what you're ready for yet. And, and so I'm going to trust the Spirit to guide to you what you're ready for. And uh, it's very different from, you know, the, the teacher who wants to play God and make a bunch of students into his or her own image. Uh, there's a respect for the student to say, you, ha- you are an equal, you're probably a greater, you're the senior partner in your own learning, and I as the teacher am just your junior partner to help you as as I'm able. Um, and then I think your last question, Gigi, was how do we choose a respect, how do we choose a teacher who we even want to entrust with some of our time? And, um, you know, I, I, I sort of wish we could come back next week and talk about that because I need some time to think more deeply about that myself, but the thing, one of the things I'll say uh, about the people who've had a big influence on me is I sense that those people didn't just have knowledge, they had love for what, what they taught about. Um, I think I was more attracted to their love for it than I was to their knowledge. And there are people with a whole lot of knowledge, but they don't seem to love what they know. And they're of less attraction to me. I mean, they have a gift to offer and I'm grateful for what they offer. But the ones that I'm looking for as spiritual teachers, I want to sense, I don't just want to gain their knowledge. I want to emulate their love for what they know. You know, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is I always have the feeling that those teachers actually love me. Uh, and if, they, if they're at a distance or the, the sense that they're writing out of love, that they're or speaking and teaching out of love, that, that they care about the well-being of their students, that to me is another good sign. I guess I'm thinking again of Jesus. Remember he says um, he has sheep that he calls by name, and, and the sheep know the shepherd because they, they feel his voice, and he calls them by name. He, knows, he, he speaks to their unique situation. And I suppose when there is a teacher whose words go to my heart and they speak to my situation. I feel like they get me. They know my name in that sense. That is part of what invites, that, that it stirs up my curiosity to, to want to hear and learn more. Um, 
But, you know, again, I, I think of another passage from Scripture in the book of Proverbs. It says that wisdom is found in the abundance of counselors. And, and that's why I, I think we're all, maybe there are exceptions to this, but in general, I think it's wise for us to try to have many teachers and many diverse teachers. <laughs> I heard someone make a little interpretation of that verse in Proverbs by saying, um, you know, wisdom is found in the abundance of counselors who all disagree with each other. <laughs> because in their contradictions and in their disagreement, guess what? It challenges me to think. And the thinking is, is again, what, what learning is about. Thanks for that. That just kind of reminds me that almost anything that we know or that we're learning about, we can only know one piece of it. Yes. And so that the the more perspectives you can have, the better sense you'll have of what whatever it is that you're being taught or that you're trying to learn. Gigi, that that is so I think that's so important. And I think it that also reminds me that almost everybody who writes or teaches they're trying to solve a set of problems. Um, and what I've noticed when you look through history, for example, at the history of Christian doctrine, for example, you, you see, oh, people in the third century were solving problems they inherited from the second century. And the solutions to those problems created new problems for people in the fourth century. They created solutions that created problems for people in the fifth century. And when we can understand that, I think it helps us see that uh, this that nobody gets the last word, right? Uh, that that this is a conversation. Um, there was a, a, a theologian I love dearly who died back in the late '90s, named William James McClendon, and he was a um, uh, a brilliant Baptist theologian. He wrote a book. Uh, he wrote a systematic theology, three-volume systematic theology, which was ironic because he didn't believe in systematic theology. He was what's called a narrative theologian, and he used his narrative the theology in each of those volumes. But in his volume, uh, everyone thought his first volume would be doctrine, but it wasn't. Uh, his first volume was ethics. He said, we have to start with ethics because we have to treat one another well enough that we can become a community that learns together. And then from that, we go to doctrine. He defined doctrine as the ongoing practice of learning by that community that has learned how to love one another. And then that led to his third volume about mission. And that's what that learning community tries to do in the world. So I, that to me has been a, um, uh, a gift to remember that this process is ongoing. Nobody, nobody gets the last word. Brian, I wonder if you would bring us home. Uh, if there's anything that you would, would invite the audience, those listening, to consider as we close out this time together. Well, first, what a pleasure to be with the three of you. Uh, what good conversation and what an honor to work side by side with, with, with the three of you. Uh, let me invite everyone to just uh, wherever you are, if you can take a couple of deep breaths, maybe... Uh, don't do this if you're driving, but close your eyes for just a second. And uh, maybe you could bring to the mind as many of your teachers from elementary school, your first outside the home teachers, and see, if, uh, see who comes to mind. You might not remember their names. You might remember them right away. You might remember the classroom and the blackboard and the 
the bulletin board and everything else, but just let a few teachers come to mind. And I'd invite you to just express a prayer of thanks. Thanks to God for the gift of these teachers in your life. And thanks to those teachers who helped you become a learner. They were your first guides into learning. And it might be the one of them stands out. And you could especially think of that one. What blessing that person has brought into your life. When we're young, we're assigned teachers, which is a good thing. We would probably not pick the ones we needed most. <laughs> but hopefully by the time we're adults, we, we learn how to choose our teachers. And I wonder if you could think in your spiritual life of uh, one or two, maybe one who's living, who you have heard in person, and one who may not be living, you've encountered them through their writings or some other artifacts of their teaching. Just see who comes to mind in each of those categories. This might be something you come back to in the days and hours ahead, to those faces and names, and then to think, what was it that touched me about each of those teachers through my life? And then, I'd invite us each to then think about ourselves and the people we influence, whether we're officially teachers or not, uh, the people who observe something in us that can be contagious. Uh, they can learn from our words and our actions and our manner and our presence. Think about some of the people around you who maybe you've not noticed it before, but they keep an eye on you. They're picking up something from you you're in that way a teacher in their life. And maybe we can pause and be truly grateful from the depths of our hearts for the gift of learning. Jesus took that word disciple. All that disciple means is student. And he elevated it. The greatest, one of the greatest gifts in life is to be a disciple, to be a learner. And let's be thankful that we each in our own way get to uh, take on that name and that role. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. We hope you are feeling the contagious energy of how the CAC continues to sprout from its deep roots. As you can tell from the past few episodes, nobody is a bigger fan of this than Richard himself. The CAC faculty is entering its next phase under the leadership of Brian McLaren. In our next episode, we will be exploring the simple and challenging questions that guide us in offering learning opportunities for engaged contemplatives and how we seek to integrate them. Thanks for listening to this podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. 
an educational nonprofit that introduces seekers to the contemplative Christian path of transformation. To learn more about our work, visit us at cac.org. Everything Belongs is made possible thanks to the generosity of our supporters and the shared work of Mike Petro, Paul Swanson, Talitha Baker, Mikkel Chevrier, Izzy Spitz, Megan Hare, Sarah Palmer, Barb Lopez, Brandon Strange, and me, Corey Wayne. The music you hear is composed and provided by our friends, Hammock. And we'd also like to thank Sound On Studios for all of their work in post-production. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.